It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. What's up, guys? Get ready for part one of an incredible three-part episode where we delve into the controversial, thought-provoking, and sometimes almost scandalous viewpoints with the man who burned $1 million to raise awareness about the trillions of dollars being printed, the one and only Balaji Srinivasan. Balaji, who predicted the response to COVID and the civil unrest that followed on Twitter before basically anybody else, is joining us now to talk about the precarious state of the economy, possible banking collapse worse in 2008, and the catastrophic consequences you'll need to be prepared for. Get your mental armor ready and brace yourself for part one of this very powerful conversation. First, did you know Impact Theory is now available on Amazon Music? Head over to the Amazon Music app to hear more Impact Theory episodes like this, the hard conversations that really matter. Don't wait, guys. Subscribe to Impact Theory now on Amazon Music and be legendary. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. The problems go all the way to the bedrock of the financial system in terms of treasuries being the new toxic waste. Uh, It's going to be at least as bad as 2008, but probably worse than that. You spent a million dollars of your own money to raise the alarm to the fact that the government is printing trillions of dollars. And what I want to know is, how are you so sure that the U.S. economy is in really uh bad shape. What does Bitcoin have to do with this? And how on earth could you justify spending a million dollars of your own money to make people aware of this? I do believe uh, that uh, we're in the middle of something or the beginning of something that is at least as serious as the 2008 crisis. Um, The government is extremely good at kicking the can. And like that's its primary skill in some ways. So it's hard to know exactly when things will be formally acknowledged as such. You know, I've got, I've got a bunch of slides that show that the economic situation is parlous, A. Um, B, that, uh, you know, the, the degree of collapse across a number of different industries and a number of different weaknesses will probably necessitate some form of bailouts or printing, even if it doesn't look exactly like 2008. Um, a lot of what the financial system does is it evolves to evade last time's pattern recognition. Um, and so it won't, it may not look exactly like it used to, despite what form it comes in, um, whether it's like treasury buybacks or the people's QE, which are different ways of like injecting money into the system that don't look exactly like the 2008 bailouts. I do believe an enormous amount of money is going to be printed just like Ray Dalio, just like a number of other people do. And, uh, in such a case, you want to have quote outside money whether that is uh, gold, whether that is a foreign fiat currency that you have faith in that's sort of outside the Fed's control, uh, or whether that is Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin in particular is you know built to be difficult to seize. 
uh, I think that's that's part of the answer, and it's not the only it's only not the only thing. You you want allocation. You want to think about other things in life, like where you live, your location. Again, Dalio also thinks of that as an important thing. You know, the early 2010s, Janet Yellen was credibly reported as having known about the housing crisis, having seen it, and not raise the alarm. Uh, and you know, now I'm actually sort of finding like you know people quote don't want to hear you raise the alarm or whatever. They're like, oh my god, you're a doomer. Why are you saying this, right? The financial crisis was maybe officially acknowledged in September 2008, but of course it had been going on for years before then. It was just something where it became undeniable at that point. But I felt it was my responsibility, having put together what I had seen, to be like, you know what? This is a lot worse than people are saying. It's not just a, like a single bank crisis. It's not even just a banking crisis. It's a central banking crisis. The problems go all the way to the bedrock of the financial system in terms of treasuries being the new toxic waste. And uh, it's going to be at least as bad as 2008, but probably worse than that. One thing I really want to, I want the audience to understand why I become so obsessed with this. And I've heard you say that the farther we get from the last deleveraging, the more incautious people become. And what I think people have, the the subroutine that runs in the average American's mind for sure, is that uh, this hasn't ever happened, not realizing what they mean is hasn't happened in my lifetime. And they don't realize the hard truth, which is that every single empire and every reserve currency all throughout all of recorded history have all collapsed. They have all failed. They have all gone through this massive deleveraging. And deleveraging is a really polite way of saying everybody loses everything. And it it is a it is a bloodbath. It is often, as Ray Dalio talks about, it, it is often marked by blood, literal blood in the streets. This is when we go to war. Everybody's freaking out. And so because it's been so long since um, we've had a big war on a global scale, because nobody alive uh, in the Western world anyway is aware of a massive deleveraging, they don't understand that A, they do happen, B, that they ha- when they happen, they happen fast, and C, when they happen, it is catastrophic. And so I'm like, I don't want to be chicken little. I am super optimistic but man, the more I started getting into financial content, the more I was like, whoa, there's something going on here. Ray Dalio says that every society, every empire goes through six stages. Stage six is absolute collapse. And for people that don't know Ray, he built the largest hedge fund in the world. So this is somebody that literally puts their own money at stake, much in the way that you have, to say, hey, I think I know what's going on. He's been right so many times that he's built the largest hedge fund ever. And so what he's saying is, okay, there's six stages. Stage six is total collapse. P.S. The U.S. is stage 5.5. So eh, like that's that's not ideal. So as people hear you talk, the one thing, you're a very metered guy, but the one thing I want people to understand about why I'm obsessed with this content is um, sky's probably not falling today. At least that's my take. We'll get to the the sort of how impossible it is to predict the timing a little bit later, but to really understand how these cycles happen, and they are cycles, where we're at in the cycle, so that you understand what to do. Um, so if you don't mind, walk us through the the rapidity with which this stuff happens. Because I know that you have uh, some slides that walk through, like it was three days from when SVB collapses to when they're printing. Like that, the, the speed at which this stuff happens, I think is really important for people to understand. One other thing you might want to just kind of point out to your audience is, um, like, you know, I, I am, uh, I'm younger than Ray, uh, but I've, I've done some okay things in, in life. So you called out, uh, what was going to happen with COVID, that it was going to be serious. Everybody said you're out of your mind and you were like one yeah. of the first people to call it. 
Yeah, and, and I, I think I also gave a pretty detailed projection of what would happen. And if you go and look at the, you know, the QTs on that, um, it's one of those things that feels like somebody has tweeted like, uh, I nailed everything to such an extent that it, that it seems less remarkable today because of, you know, it was, um, it's almost like reading back history. There's like one thing I think I got wrong, which was like, you know, that full face masks would be more common for longer. But otherwise, I think I played it out r- relatively well. I'm an angel investor. And so what I do is I look at long-term trends and I'm very early on them. I'm early on genomics and robotics and AI. And most of the time you want to identify those things that have a lot of positive upside, right? But after COVID, COVID was the first time I was looking at someone was like, I cannot... I cannot figure out a way that this isn't bad. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it was, it was kind of like that. I just was looking at too many graphs, too many charts. I'm like, you know, this is the first time I've seen something. You have to work back to that time, which is now several years ago. And I was like, this is the first time I've ever had a sinking feeling where it's like down into the right, you know? Um, and that's mainly because I wasn't really looking at such graphs. I wasn't, I wasn't paying that much attention before the financial crisis. Um, I was in academia at that time. I was, was just wasn't looking at markets or whatever. Uh, but I've got that kind of feeling again. Let me let me actually show the slides and and then maybe we can jump go, go to there. Right, that'd be perfect. Okay. This concept of the fiat crisis, right? Uh, one way of thinking about it is it's like okay, how fast could you know things unwind? How fast could they start printing trillions? Well, it was two days from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank to the printing of $300 billion, even if they didn't call it printing. It was two weeks for $500 billion to move out of local banks to money market funds and to uh, you know big banks and, and so on and so forth, for them to flee, right? Um, it was two months to go from patient zero, the first patient being infected by COVID in the US, to lockdown um, as January to March of, of 2020. It was two quarters from uh, Bernanke declaring that it was a, quote, mild recession in April 2008 to the full-blown financial crisis being acknowledged in uh, September 2008. Okay. Finally, it was two years for the USSR to go from superpower in 1989 to total collapse and non-existence in 1991. Okay. And so, you know, the lesson of that is that too slow is too late, right? That was, you know, two days, two weeks. Two months, two quarters, two years, too slow is too late. And meaning if you don't react quickly, you're going to be too late. You're going to be the one left holding the bag to get smashed by the freight train. Well, yeah. And and then what does react mean? And the thing about it is, um, Paul Graham actually has a good saying, which is when something is exponential, it always feels like you're reacting too early. And the reason is because you don't have the normal social cues around you. It's like... Um, uh, it's like it's like flying by instruments as opposed by opposed to flying by looking out the window, right? Looking out the window, you'd see nothing is wrong, but the instruments show actually beep beep beep. There's a big mountain in front, so you should pull up, right? And you have to essentially trust your instruments at that point because nobody is saying anything. Everybody's calm, and um, that's like absolute reckoning as opposed to relative reckoning, um, and uh, that's an unnatural way for humans to behave, especially when it comes to doing something atypical. Um, you have to have the, you know, that's what being an angel investor is like. That's what being an investor is like. I mean, the whole point, of course, you've heard buy low, sell high, right? Um, you don't want than hard. it sounds. Oh, yeah. It's much harder than uh, it sounds, right? Because, right, if you're, if you're buying low, you're going against a crowd. 
If you're selling high, again, you're going against the crowd. Buying low, you know, you're, you're, you're getting something when everybody else thinks it's a bad idea. You're, you're literally going opposite the crowd both times. So it's trivial when you look at a graph, oh, I bought here and I sold there. When you actually, if you could have VR that would project the emotions of the moment, and then you're hitting the buy button at that time when, you know, as I say, the time to buy is when there's blood in the streets or whatever, right? Or you, you know, you, you get greedy when others are fearful, fearful. If you had VR that captured the emotions of the moment and being very contrary to the crowd, um, it feel very different, you know? Anyway, so, so too slow is too late and many things are breaking. Okay. So, um, there's the recent debt ceiling showdown that was a near miss, but the, uh, it, it boosted uncertainty. In U.S. debt, it felt like the conversation was different this year. Did you feel like that as well? Very much so, and I reacted differently and moved my money differently. And yeah, it not only did it feel different when you look at the chart of how high the debt ceiling is now compared to what it was last year. Like it, it is a straight vertical line. It's crazy. Yes, that's right. And what's happened is basically like, um, in a sense. You know, you can think of it as um, the more people can deficit spend and borrow without apparent consequence, the more they do so. It's as if you had a seemingly infinite credit card and there were no consequences for decades and uh, you were like accelerating into the wall, right? Because it just feels like nothing is happening. Hey, we're so, such a superpower. We're so invincible. Even as the tide is going out, even as as we'll get to, like you know, foreign affairs now agrees it's a multipolar world. Um, China is like the number one car manufacturer out of nowhere. They're becoming a plane manufacturer. Like all of these graphs, huge amounts of essentially the U.S.'s scope around the world is narrowing very quickly. Um, and its domestic scope, there's massive internal conflict, and yet its ambitions go to the sky even as state capacity is falling through the floor. Mm. Does that make sense, right? So um, One thing I want to anchor people around, and I want to know if you think this is true, that the, the, the collapse, the big collapse begins with debt. And if it, I think that the story that we're going to go through, at least in the beginning part of the interview, is really a story of debt. Um, do you agree with that? It is it is debt, but it's also um, you know it's 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 a, it's several different shocks at the same time. Um, so uh, you know, Dalio actually talks about um, the, and I'm just citing him because I think he came to similar conclusions. But I actually have, in some ways, maybe a, a more hopeful take or, or somewhat different takes in terms of uh, similar inputs, different outputs. So yeah, there's the economics where. You have um, essentially a sovereign debt crisis, not not just brewing underway, with lots of smaller countries already defaulting, but you know the big ones yet to come potentially. But you also have massive internal political conflict in the U.S., and you have massive external superpower conflict between uh, the U.S. and the the dragon bear, you know, Russia plus China. Um, and you also have um, you know a couple other factors, which are a huge consequent decline in the U.S.'s soft power globally and domestically. So, you know, super majorities of Americans don't trust D.C. And abroad, you have, you know, France, Brazil, um, Israel, even, uh, you know, allies, right, that are trading in yuan or declaring strategic autonomy or, you know, Brazil is, is housing Iranian warships. 
Um, and uh, even Taiwan said it would shoot down, you know, U.S. Uh, uh, planes if they tried to bomb TSMC, right? And um, you know, that was like a little tempest in a teapot, but it was clear that a lot of countries are kind of going their own way, okay? And then finally, you've got the technological shocks um, where, uh, you know, the, in a sense, um, you know, for like the ABCs of economic apocalypse for blue America in particular are, you know, AI, Bitcoin, and China in the sense that AI takes their jobs and Bitcoin uh, takes their power over money and China takes potentially their military power um, because lots of the jobs, especially of like, you know, the Northeast are lawyer, bureaucrat, doctor, they're like licensed jobs in some way where an AI might be able to do them better, faster, cheaper. Um, and then finally, you have um, the uncensoring of social media. And that is, you know, what Elon has done with Twitter. Uh, but it's also, um, you know, YouTube is following suit. They have, they have reduced their level of censorship on certain things. And uh, then you also have things like Noster and Farcast, which are decentralized social media. So that's like a, a digital glasnost to accompany Bitcoin's digital perestroika, okay? Meaning um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, you had truly free speech, which was, uh, you know, like a glasnost. And you also had free markets, which is perestroika. And we're having that in the West. So you have like a lot of different shocks hitting at the same time. It is not simply the economic shock. It's in the context of everything else. Does that make sense? All right. So we have all these things colliding at the same time. It's what I'll call a rogue wave phenomenon. Yeah. And let me let me kind of just show. Yeah, like a rogue wave, right? So, but um, let me show what all these things are, right? So I mentioned debt ceiling was like a near miss that boosted uncertainty in U.S. debt. Um, there's an ongoing banking crisis. Most U.S. banks are, quote, technically near insolvency. Hundreds are already fully insolvent. Okay. That's, you know, a guy who disagrees on many other things. This guy, Rubini, um, you know, is, is saying that. There's a banking crisis at the time of, you know, uh, in, in um, May, June of uh, 2023, we've seen three of the largest, three of the four largest bank failures in, in the last two months. Somebody, uh, this guy Bianco, Jim Bianco of Bianco Research coined the term, it's not a bank run, it's a bank walk, right? Deposits are leaving banks regularly. Um, they're not, uh, they're, they're not moving um, all at once digitally overnight. They're moving pretty fast. Um, and they're moving to places with higher interest rates. They're moving out of regional banks, right? Hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when you start something off with three of the largest four bank failures in the last few months, is that, is that the end of something? Uh, you know, it's funny, uh, you know, somebody observed um, the reason the banking crisis is kind of operating in slow motion is we don't have, um, it's not like on a blockchain where you can see real-time financials for everything in banks. Mm-hmm. You have to sort of wait for the quarterly reports. So it's a hurry up and wait kind of thing. So every quarterly report, then people look at it and they're like, oh my God, the losses are so big. And then, you know, they act on it, right? Um, so it's kind of a slow motion thing in some ways. I'm not saying there aren't things that happen in between quarterly reports. Sometimes there are, like obviously the bank run. But, but often quarterly reports kick off a whole new burst of activity. Moreover, it's not just, you know, these, these huge banks that have just failed. Um, Stanford study reports there's $2.2 trillion in unrealized losses that many U.S. banks face the same risks that brought down Silicon Valley Bank. And fundamentally, um, what happened, as, as we'll get to, is the, the Fed and the Treasury, um, the, the Fed basically devalued Treasuries. So the bedrock of the financial system, everybody who bought Treasuries, long-term Treasuries in 2021, got completely destroyed in 2022, and some of those institutions started to collapse in 2023. And so the safest asset in the world became the riskiest asset in the world. The quote: How do they undermine it? The, the, this is an important idea. How how does 
How did the government end up doing that? Let me give a few analogies first, and then let me get more kind of technical or specific. So you remember in 2008 when the banks uh, sold AAA mortgage-backed securities to each other, but they really weren't AAA, mm-hmm. right? And it was something where it was a combination of some of those guys were lying to themselves, some of them were lying to themselves so they could lie to others, the ratings agencies were lying, like everybody was kind of, uh, you know, a combination of, it's like self-interested delusion, right? Um, where, you know, oh my God, are you saying that these mortgages aren't, aren't aren't real, that would mean a housing crash. That would mean all these people are going to lose their homes. That's anti-American, right? Um, that was the tone in 06, 07. What are you saying? The housing market doesn't always go up? You're crazy, right? You're a doomer. And uh, you have to work back to that period of time. But that is one of the reasons why this was allowed to go on for so long, the, the housing crisis, why I was able to get so bad is because people thought, well, real estate's a safe investment. It's always going to go up. Who, when is that ever going to go down? The government is backing it, et cetera, et cetera, right? And uh, the AAA ratings um, on mortgages, are, uh, or not mortgages themselves, mortgage-backed securities, is part of what allowed the crisis to get so bad. And one of the issues was the rating agencies were not able to downrate those things um, for a variety of reasons. One is that they're paid by the the you know, uh, the, the guys who they're, they're rating. Okay. But the se- so that's a private issue. But the second is later, um, for example, in 2011, when S and P actually downgraded us debt from AAA, do you know what happened to them? No, nothing. They, they got, uh, they got, um, you know, uh, a case from the U S government. And uh, I believe like a senior official there, this guy, you know, Sharma had to step down. The U S government did not like, um, S and P downgrading the debt. And uh, I'm pretty sure that, you know, the government would not have liked the ratings agencies downgrading the mortgage-backed securities either in the run-up to 2008 because a bipartisan thing by both Bush and Clinton was to get people into homes, okay? NYT has this article like, you know, the Bush drive for home ownership fueled the housing bubble. And then there's another one, which was how the the Clinton era roots of the financial crisis, okay, in the Wall Street Journal. So if you have sometimes binocular vision, where you take the New York Times attacking Republicans and the Wall Street Journal attacking Democrats, you put it together and you're like, oh, that was a bipartisan government-caused housing crash. Did you know that part? No. Okay, that's actually pretty important, right? Um, It's important what follows because... Uh, there's a bunch of movies that have been made on the housing crisis, and uh, there some of them are good movies. There's The Big Short, uh, which talks about you know the outsiders and they're seeing the problems. There is uh, um, Too Big to Fail, which talks about like the government's vantage point on it. Um, there's Margin Call, which talks about the bank's vantage point on it. Uh, there's inside job, which is sort of like the activist point on it, which is calling for more regulation. But what there really hasn't been, at least to my knowledge, is one that shows the extent to which government policy pushed banks to, um, you know, again, in the words of both the, the Times and the Journal, to um, because they wanted to get people into houses, because they wanted affordable housing goals, ending redlining and so on and so forth. Both the Journal and the Times were publishing the truth on this around that time in the early 2010s. So the government was nudging, pushing banks. And if you didn't, um, uh, if you didn't go and uh, you know extend all these mortgages to people who probably couldn't pay, well, often you got acquired by a bank that did, and that would kind of um, you know override your decision making anyway. 
When it comes to platforms that will help you run a business, there is no shortage of options on the market. But if you want to use the best, most advanced, and most efficient platform out there, you need to be using Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. With award-winning customer service, the internet's highest converting checkout page, and a suite of integrated AI tools, Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy to start, run, and grow a business. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly use Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash impact. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So that's So like hold on. I think it's up. important to understand why, why they're doing that. So are these ESG style goals where there's like a moral imperative that's driving it? That's exactly right. You know, for example, here's a quote, December 21st, 2008. Again, 
when the New York Times had an incentive to attack Bush over this, um, they said, Bush drive for homeownership fueled housing bubble. Quote, we can put light where there's darkness and hope where there's despondency. And part of it is working together as a nation to encourage folks to own their own home. George W. Bush, October 15, 2002, right? So that is the approach which says, oh, we deregulate the market and you know push people and so on and so forth. There's some truth to the idea that um, they pushed uh, lending standards to be low, but that's not exactly the same as deregulation. They actually use regulations to push banks to hit certain, uh, whether you call them formal or informal quotas, they were doing that. Then the other side of it is um, the Clinton era roots of the financial crisis in uh, you know Wall Street Journal article in 2013. And um, that says affordable housing goals established in the 1990s led to a massive increase in risky subprime mortgages, right? And, uh, you know, there's a strong case. The answers can be traced to September 12, 1992. On that day, presidential candidate Bill Clinton proposed using private pension funds to invest in government priorities such as affordable housing, generate long-term broad-based economic benefits, right? And um, so the point is, if you add up these two articles, again, you start getting binocular vision. If you heard that saying like... Uh, you know, there's there's the stupid party and the evil party, and sometimes they get together and do something bipartisan, and that's both stupid and evil. Have you heard that? Nice. It's lovely. So one thing I, I don't want to get lost in all this, I really want people to understand why this stuff is happening. So this is maybe you and I don't agree on this, but I, I, I am formulating a hypothesis the more that I get into this, uh, that the following is what's happening. And this is, this is actually me synthesizing you and Dalio and a few other people like Raul Paul. So you... What ends up happening, my thesis goes, and please strike this down where you think I'm wrong, is that uh, you become the reserve currency. You now have the ability to print money to cover up problems uh, that begins to change the uh, the way that people perceive money, even at the governmental level. So now all of a sudden people start trading what works in a free market sense of working that you spend a dollar you get to in return. It exchanges that for, I, I think morally we ought to do this thing. We do it. It's not working, meaning that we're losing money. So you get the 2008 crisis, but they're like, what crisis? We're just going to paper over it. We're going to print money. We're going to, it was bad, but it wasn't fall off a cliff bad. And so they print over that and they, they go, oh, look, see, that wasn't that bad. And we were doing something good. We're trying to be moral actors because to be honest, like this was the big awakening that I went through. I'm like, this sounds awesome. I love that you're ending redlining. You're getting people onto the housing ladder that previously weren't like it all sounds amazing. But then Thomas Sowell comes along and he gives me this idea that then you start watching play out, which is the last 30 years have been marked by exchanging what worked for what sounds good. Now, when you tie that to debt, because again, my whole thesis is that the collapse begins with debt. Because if you don't have debt, you can get away with some of this. But the problem is you, you end up getting into the moment that we're in now, which is why you talk about all these problems happening at the same time. The reason I think this becomes a, that you're potentially about to walk off a cliff is because you have all this debt. The government has a full GDP in debt. Uh, U.S. households have full GDP in debt. Um, corporations have full GDP in debt. And so now all of a sudden, the only way out of that debt is to either uh, lower your interest rates, which if you do that, then you're going to have inflation uh, to print money to cover some of your debts, which again, inflation. And so if you have to print and you can't lower rates anymore, 
Now you're in trouble. So they start raising rates. The problem is everybody's got all this massive, massive debt. And this is where editors put back up that the debt ceiling picture where we see this huge spike in the last year where it is just mahusive. The the amount of extra debt that we have right now is not a little. It is it is unbelievable. It's like 400% more than normal. It's just absolutely astronomical. So you, you have this massive amount of debt. You can no longer lower interest rates. In fact, you have to start raising interest rates. The Fed gets everybody, again, this is me quoting you, the Fed gets everybody to buy into the bonds, treasuries, like, hey, rates are going to be low for the foreseeable future. All's good. And then whatever, six months later, they take them to the moon, the fastest rate kite in, in history or certainly recent memory. And so now people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. All these bonds that I just bought, they're now toxic. I can't get them off. SVB fails. Everybody's blaming them as if they did something crazy. They put all their money in like the supposed safe asset. And so now you're in this game of like the only solution left is to print because you you can't lower interest rates uh, because if you, you can't lower interest rates because of inflation, you can't raise interest rates because you will break the economy and more people aren't going to be able to pay their debts, including the government itself. And so now you're in a conundrum where all of your tools are gone except printing money. And so the question that I'll ask you point blank is, we've printed a lot of money and nothing bad has happened. So why, why now? Why, why is it a problem now? In short, like the system is starting to creak and you're starting to see uh, what I'd call consumer failures, like in the sense of in 2008, you know, when you went to your ATM or something that didn't, that, that, that just continued to work. Um, the failures in were like enterprise failures in the sense that there were guys who were sweating in skyscrapers with piece of paper back and forth that weren't worth what they, what they thought they were. Now you're having banks blow up on, uh, on main street. Um, you are having, it, it, it is becoming much harder to cover things up. Okay. So we just talked about the fact that all these banks blew up, the fact that there was this near miss on the debt ceiling that got people talking about debt again. Uh, the fact that there's 2.2 trillion in unrealized losses according to the Stanford study. And I'll come back to what those are, but we have commercial real estate crisis, um, due to remote work, due to all the crime in blue cities and, and so on. Um, commercial real estate prices could crash 40% from their peak in a worse disaster than the financial crisis. Morgan Stanley warns, okay? That alone is pretty bad, all right? Um, 2022 uh, was the worst year for bonds evidently in recorded history. Um, so it's a, it's a bond crisis, not just a bank crisis, and everybody buys bonds, as we'll come back to. That's like, that's actually at the core of a lot of this. Um, and, uh, you know, bonds were seen as a safe haven, but now, but they're actually central to to this this crisis. It's not like a, um, it's a crisis that's caused by governments, just like 2008, but even more directly. Um, insurance. Remember AIG when they went down in 2008, like the guys who were supposed to back up everybody, you know? So today, insurers also bought a lot of bonds um, and, you know, double-digit percentage of their portfolio, which are supposed to be safe, are held in now essentially these unsafe assets that are being devalued in a big way. Isn't it like 70% of their portfolio? Yeah, exactly. There's a graph here. Life insurers have like 70%, and you can go to other kinds of insurers. And the thing is, life insurers, you might say, oh, well, that's different than real estate insurers. There's actually been a collapse in life expectancy in the U.S., like this overnight huge collapse. So life insurers are paying out way more than they expected. And um, so lots of insurers are just getting... Um, they, they have to pay when they didn't think they were going to have to pay. Okay, there's insurance crisis. There's a fiscal crisis, $1.4 trillion in unfunded pensions. There's auto loans spiking defaults in that trillion-dollar-plus sector. 
Their student loans payments uh, may resume on $1.8 trillion in debt after this multi-year holiday due to COVID. And it's almost like the worst, right? If you, if you just kept it or you'd forgiven it, right, both those you know, would have been better than suspending it for three years and then resuming it because now what's happened is um, people didn't sock away the cash for a rainy day, right? They didn't, um, they didn't use it to pay down the debt. They just expanded their spending. And now suddenly, and many of them probably gambled that, uh, you know, the, the, the um, student loans would go away forever, right? And uh, because it got suspended. Now they're coming back and they're like, oh no. And now they've got it on top of their rent payment or something like that. So that's going to be a- Well, let's use this as an example. So why then don't we just forgive that debt? Oh, you, I mean, well, first that's a, that's a huge tug of war between two groups. You're, when you, you know, if one man's uh, assets and another man's liability, you are marking down a trillion dollars in someone else's books and they will fight tooth and nail to stop that from happening, right? Um, and uh, so it's a zero-sum game. It's a, like, if you have the debt, you want it to be marked down. If, you, if, you're, the, um, if you're the lender, you don't. Because that's your revenue stream, right? That's how, you know, maybe if you're a college, that's how you pay your administrators or whatever, right? Uh, But then why doesn't the U.S. government just pay that debt? Well, it could. And if it does do that, then it's just printed a giant amount of money. And uh, then people will say, why don't you print the, you know, my, my mortgage as well, not just my student loan debt? Why don't you print my car loan away, right? And once you've kind of broken the seal on that, that's like the people's QE, the people's quantitative easing, where the money is printed not just to bail out banks, but to bail out everybody. And you know what? Like at first, people will, some people will love that. But that much introduction of money into the system starts actually devaluing the currency itself. So you talk about student loans. There's credit card debt, almost a trillion dollars in credit card debt, record high. Okay. Um, there is, uh, and there's yet more, right? Globally, there's Ukraine, the Ukraine crisis. That's like at least $100 billion in, uh, it's, it's, a, a, it's like $100 billion in direct costs for just the arms, but that understates it. It's, it's easily a trillion indirect. Europe alone paid like $800 billion in energy costs. It's like a multi-trillion dollar war. Um, you know, people say wars cost blood and treasure. They, I mean, just think about it. Like uh, you've seen, obviously, these bombs blowing up things in Ukraine or what have you. Think about how expensive a building is, right? It's like somebody's entire life to pay for like a like a house, you know, thirty year mortgage or whatever. So now you have a bomb that blows up like a thousand person apartment building. That's like a thousand economic lives wrecked, right? Even if the people didn't get blown up, it's like a thousand healthy working, you know, uh, people's ten years of their life or whatever is consumed if at at current very high housing prices. So. When whole cities are leveled and stuff like that, that's a lot of damage, right? And that's just within the the country. Obviously, outside, the energy crisis is tremendous, and of course, the humanitarian crisis is tremendous. Um, you also have so it's you know it's the Ukraine crisis. You have uh, the energy crisis in in Europe, and you know, some people are like, oh well, prices are down, so energy crisis is over. And it's like, well, what was the cost of that, right? You had demand destruction. You had businesses that shut down because they couldn't afford the energy costs and then they stopped consuming energy. And maybe, you know, that's, that's why energy prices are down because they're not consuming. You know, the, the, the level of demand destruction that probably happened in Q4 of last year, you need to see stats on it. In Q4 of 2022. Um, then de-dollarization, uh, this guy, Stephen Jen, um, who's not like, uh, he's not like a zero hedge guy. 
Um, he says de-dollarization is happening at a stunning pace and people did not um, account for exchange rates and so on. He's like, by his calculations, uh, you know, the dollar was down like, you know, in, in terms of its share of um, assets but held by other countries like 19% last year and everything else is up. You know, Southeast Asia, um, all those countries, the 10 countries are using uh, their own currency for trade. Indonesia president has said that. Central Asia, the ACU, um, they met, they said they want to de-dollarize. Um, you have, uh, you know, South America, Latin America, you have Brazil saying they're using the yuan. You have even France saying they want to use the yuan. You have Iraq and the Middle East trading oil for yuan. You have Russia trading oil for yuan. Um, and uh, you have Israel even holding you on. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of countries. That's a lot of the world right there, you know. And um, so de-dollarization, if the dollar is no longer have to be used in an obligate way, right, if it's no longer, um, you know, it's no longer the thing that you have to use, if you have options, then that means you've got another rail to go on. And one thing I should make clear, by the way, is I don't think, um, this is where I differ from Dalio actually on this. He thinks the dollar just gets replaced by China. That's a, a clean kind of U.S.-China replacement. I actually think that uh, de-dollarization is decentralization. So, so the kind of clean statement is money is a store of value, medium of exchange, unit of account. And sometimes in the cryptocurrency, you might also include like uh, a system of control and like a financial system. Okay. So, but store of value um, that you know, from treasuries or you know, just holding the dollar itself, you may go to gold. Central banks are buying record amounts of gold. Or you may go to Bitcoin. Um, or you may go to other cryptocurrencies. Uh, or you may go to foreign fiat. So medium exchange, you may use foreign fiat currencies, the yuan. You may use the rupee. You may use local currencies. You may use cryptocurrencies um, in roughly that order, I think. So, you know, um, in terms of unit of count, that may remain the dollar for a while, but that's like the last thing to flip. You know, basically you can just look up an exchange rate, you know, and, and flip that. That's the easiest one. Um, system of control is the most important in some ways. It's not normally listed. This is due to Andreas Antonopoulos. He came up with this concept, but system of control is who has root access over the currency you're using. You know, this was not necessarily quite an explicit concept in the past, but today it's very explicit is the Fed can literally hit a button and freeze accounts, just like they did to the Canadian truckers, just like they did to Russian assets. You know, Canada's bank, uh, you know, banking system did that. And so system of control, you know, the Chinese yuan, the Indian rupee, Bitcoin, Ethereum, those are outside the ability of the U.S. financial system to set down, to, to shut down with one click. Okay. Um, then there is uh, the financial system. And I think that's uh, the yuan and the rupee for the domestic economies that's maybe, uh, you know, in the Middle East, AED, Dubai's currency, is, st is still pegged to the dollar. Maybe it gets unpegged. Um, there's the Singapore dollar. And then, of course, there's Ethereum and the global financial system that's built on, on crypto. Um, so you have essentially both what I call land and cloud competitors to the dollar. Land being, you know, the sort of BRICS and especially China, you know, currency and then cloud being cryptocurrencies, right? And so once you start enumerating all of those, then you add on top of that, there's a huge development since 2008, which is um, there's lots and lots of fintech and crypto people around the world, okay? And if you go to other countries, um, often their payment systems are more advanced than in the U.S. For example, um, like WeChat in China or UPI in India or, you know, even like, you know, GrabPay in Southeast Asia or, you know, PagSeguro in Brazil and so like. 
you know, it's not that hard nowadays to stand up a fintech or crypto company, right? And um, by contrast, you have ACH and, and so on within the U.S. where it's like slow wire times and what have you. Do, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like how uh, payment technology is relatively lagging in the U.S.? Yeah, as soon as you get into crypto, you realize real fast uh, how slow the legacy system is. So the point is that um, the only thing the U.S. financial system has going for it is its legacy traction. It's not technologically superior. It is not something which you would choose from scratch because the U.S. is no longer a major exporter of physical goods relative to China. China is the world's number one trade partner. It's um, it's not something that either your engineer in the U.S. would pick or your conservative in the U.S. would pick or um, your, your much of the world would pick, right? So it's an incumbent that has incumbent advantages, but if it, if, if it had to be adopted from scratch today, it's not clear that it would be adopted in that way. Does that make sense, right? So it, that's yeah. important that the rest of the world, it, it's much easier to launch currencies than to scale factories. I've done both, Okay. It's not trivial to launch currency, but it's digital. Basically, China is the number one trade partner for most of, most of the world, right? Yep. I think that's shocking to the average listener. They, they have no idea that's true. See, here's the graph, right? Like essentially, here's the US in the year 2000. Here it's is crazy. China's you know, trade. Crazy. It's amazing, right? And so the thing is, that's, that's only accelerated the last three years, right? In a sense, of Dude, course- that's really true. terrifying. Th- this is where I, I feel like- um, people aren't seeing how all these things are adding up. In fact, I wrote down what I think your thesis is because I'm again, I I don't quite know if we fully agree. So it's like you've got okay, there's all the problems that we just went through, all the debt, all that stuff, plus the lack of financial innovation on behalf of the U.S. is is leading to this moment where we are now weak to contenders, and the most obvious contender is China. Um, how close am I getting to the stack of problems or the stack of issues that you think are creating what I referred to earlier as the rogue wave that seems prone to be uh, the mark of the end of the U.S. empire? I think the lack of financial innovation is certainly a factor, uh, but it's it's really, I mean, the physical world is made abroad, right? Like if you have to choose, if you, as I showed that graph, Countries don't want to choose, but if they have to choose, um, China makes your your chairs and your screws, right? People think the competition with China is like a high-tech military competition. In large part, it's a low-tech economic competition. China will screw you on the screws, right? They will literally just withhold the nuts, bolts, screws, and so on. You can't make things, right? Or more terrifyingly during COVID, the medication and PPE. Masks and, and so on. That's right. In fact, actually, there was there were there's aid airlifted. It wasn't wasn't made public, or uh, it was made public, but wasn't emphasized. Aid came from China to the U.S. So August 6, twenty twenty, Rolling Stone, the unraveling of America, and essentially, uh, here's here's this thing he said. He's like, um, <clears throat> basically, for more than two, for the first time, the international community felt compelled to send. Uh, disaster relief to Washington. For more than two centuries, reported the Irish Times, the United States has stirred a very wide range of feelings in the rest of the world, love and hatred, fear and hope, envy and contempt, awe and anger. But there's one emotion that's never been directed towards the U.S. until now, which is pity. 
As American doctors and nurses eagerly awaited emergency airlifts of basic supplies from China, the hinge of history opened to the Asian century. Okay? That's oof, Whoa. right? Now, the thing about it is I actually somewhat disagree with the quote in the sense of the U.S. is actually, I'd say not for more than two centuries, really about like U.S. world dominance is actually relatively recent. You know, it is not, it's not like an eternal fact. It, um, there's this book by Stephen Wertheim, uh, which is good, which is, um, it's like called Tomorrow the World, uh, The Birth of mm-hmm. U.S. Global Supremacy. Do you call that, do you mark that after World War II? Well, it's actually in the lead up, run up to World War II. And the thing is, I mean, this is sort of obvious, but you don't become number one by accident, mm. right? It's like, it's like, a, it's kind of like um, deciding to do a startup, right? You don't become Google by accident. It's really hard to become Google. You have to set out to become Google. It's a, it's a very difficult process. And even those who set out to it don't, don't become it. The reason I say that is a lot of people just sort of think, oh, you know, the U.S. kind of just fell into this role and, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't, you know, I never wanted to be, you know, totally world dominant with embassies in every country and, and military bases everywhere and a financial system everywhere and regulations adopted everywhere. No, it, there were people in Washington, D.C. who had a quote plan for world domination, just like the Soviets did. And, uh, you know, the difference is that I think that from 1945 to 91, um, the American version was better than the Soviet version. And why is that? It's you know, if you look at West Germany versus East Germany, West Germany is better off. South Korea versus North Korea, South Korea is better off. You look at, um, you know, the, uh, the Taiwan and uh, and Hong Kong, which were you know capitalists, and the PRC that was communist for for most of the Cold War, um, and and the uh, the Western aligned countries were better off. And so, just looked at it in terms of that neutral ground, the American system with its flaws from 1945 to 1991, was better than the Soviet system. So even if it was, quote, world domination, it was relatively benevolent world domination. What I think happened after 1991 is, without the Soviet check, uh, you know, as bad as the Soviets were, and it's good that, you know, that is on the ash heap of history and Eastern Europe is free and, you know, India has gone capitalist and all all of that is generally good, even though it was tough for a lot of the the former Soviets. Um, What happened is, the, you know, over time, um, at first the U.S. just helped Eastern Europe get back on its feet and it was occupied in making sure that the Soviet Union didn't totally blow up. Do you know, for example, that, um, or the post-Soviet didn't blow up, do you know that the, uh, they shelled the, the Russian White House in 1993? Do you know about that? No. Yeah. The, like, you, you heard a lot about Tiananmen in 89, but you didn't hear about 1993 and Yeltsin ordering like the Russian White House to be shelled with tanks, even though that's more of a like um, you know the, Russia was at least within the Western camp ish at that time. Ostensibly, it's like a it's a new democracy and so on and so forth. You've never heard about that. Most people have not heard about that. But basically, the the post Soviet era was a huge mess, and the U.S. to its credit, like essentially supervised that mess. And it's revealed later that, you know, the U.S. was backing Yeltsin. It wasn't like a completely organic thing that Yeltsin, you know, became primus inter Paris. Um, of course, you know, CIA, all these guys have an interest in loose nukes not making their way around. So the U.S. was all over that situation. It's almost like um, you're seeing a waiter. They catch a bunch of balls that have fallen, you know, down from the air. Like it's like a, a bunch of plates going there to go look like this and catch them, you know. Yep. So 
in the early 90s, I think the U.S. overall was doing a decent job, a great job in some ways on foreign policy. Eastern Europe is way better off than it was. Estonia is way better off than it was. I'm not somebody who's just like, oh, the U.S. is always evil and so on and so forth. Not at all, in fact. I think the U.S. has actually done a lot of amazing things. What started to happen, in my view, towards the end of the 90s, and then especially in the 2000s, is you start to get that messianic crusading neocon slash Samantha Power slash responsibility to protect kind of thing, arguably starting with, you know, Kosovo and then going into, you know, like Iraq and all the Middle Eastern forever wars and then onto the present day where. But why is this bad? Why is this bad? Good question. Um, The reason it's bad is that wars are never clean. You know, they're always sold to the public on this clean line of like, here's the bad guy, here's the good guy. And um, they're very, very rarely clean. Um, like even even World War II, you're, you're talking about like the firebombing of Dresden. You're talking about the nuking of Hiroshima. You're talking about lots of civilians and innocents killed, right? And many other wars are much more great than that, A. B is... Um, like in general, war should be a last resort, absolute, absolute last resort. And usually you want to solve things with economics or some kind of political solution or something like that. And uh, the reason it was bad in the late 90s is um, it's it's just unchecked power. You know, actually, it's one way to think about it. If power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Have you heard that before, right? Of course. So... Um, Right. So basically, uh, you know, especially like Iraq is something we, I think we can have consensus on. A, ju- a country was just totally blown up on totally false premises. Eight trillion dollars was wasted on these Middle Eastern wars. Huge part of the debt, by the way. OK. Um, Iraq, Afghanistan and so on. Um, ISIS formed in the aftermath of that. All these countries in the Middle East were destabilized. And for what? Like there's no accountability a lot of the same people are still in power. A lot of those neocons are still, you know, advise. They're saying now war with Ukraine. It's totally memoryless. It's like a sociopathic serial killer at this point, right? And at best, you'll get well. We meant well, and then move on. Why, why are you bringing that up? You know, and <laughs> why are you dwelling on the past? <laughs> you know, okay. Well, um, I mean, we're going back to 1619, but we can't go back to 2003, right? Like um, you're going, you know, you, you'll, the people will selectively excavate aspects of history. Uh, and and use them as a weapon in you know like uh, the the current events, but they they won't do the things that you know New York Times was responsible for printing this false intelligence, and uh, but they they want to go back 400 years and not to their own their own faults, right? So like if you notice like from 1945 to 1991, again, well like you can't defend everything that U.S. foreign policy did during that period. Um, people will say, oh, there are right wing death squads and so on. Probably there were, but you know what? There were left wing death squads, the communists who killed 100 million people, and they didn't play nice. You know, like the Venona decrypts have shown that, uh, do you know what that is, V-E-N-O-N-A? Have you heard that before? No, not once. Venona, Venona showed that um, basically the Soviet Union had riddled the United States with Soviet spies. Uh, in fact, you read Sean McMeekin's book, Stalin's War, and it makes a point that like, you know, this is not very well known about like World War II. You know, when the number one, first of all, he makes a point that World War II was actually not Hitler's war, but Stalin's war, because Stalin was actually on two fronts. He had both an Asian front and a European front. And the second thing hmm. is, you know, the least, just to digress on this for a second, you know, the least covered, but perhaps most important theater in World War II? No. 
It's the Japanese Soviet. I don't know. I literally know nothing about that collision. All right. So isn't that interesting? Obviously, you know about the Pacific War between the U.S. and the Japanese. You know a lot about probably the European conflict between, you know, Germany and Russia and Germany and, and the U.S., U.K., France. But but isn't that interesting? You do, And you know about like Germany, you know, versus Russia in terms of Stalingrad and whatever. But why, why didn't Japan and Russia fight? Because Vladivostok is there. Russia has a huge, you know, Asian front. Why didn't Japan invade from the east? When uh, Germany's invading from the West, why did they not pincer attack, right? Why, why, why did it happen in reverse? And it turns out that actually getting Japan to fight the USA was, um, in Sean McMeekin's report and in, in a lot of documents that got declassified, getting Japan to fight the USA was like one of the number one goals of Soviet foreign policy. Hmm. I did not. Yeah. So, so the reason is it goes all the way back, you know, 1905. You can push back even further, but 1905. The Japanese, just to digress on this, the Japanese um, beat the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War, 1904-1905. This was the first time a non-white power had beaten a, quote, European, you know, ancestry country in a war. This had huge influence in terms of anti-colonialist movements around the world. And in fact, at the time, the Japanese positioned themselves, uh, you know, as friends of W.E.B. Du Bois and the African-American movement in, in, in the U.S., like what would later be called the Civil Rights Movement. That's an overlap most people don't know about. Uh, there were Indians who were sympathetic to the Japanese because, you know, it's like, oh, wow, non-white people can be free or whatever, right? Um, of course, you know, Japanese were, you know, like they, they committed terrible war crimes later. But that's an aspect of history that people don't know about. Point is that um, after that, after 1905, uh, that was a huge, you know, like black eye for the, the Russian Empire. And they took the Japanese seriously, culturally after that. And even after the communist revolution, um, even if the ideology changed dramatically from Tsarism to communism, you know, it didn't change? Hmm. The geography, right? The, the territory is still abutting Japan, Right. And uh, so they still had geopolitical rivalry with Japan. They couldn't swap that part out, right? And uh, and they couldn't, you know, there were attempts to make Japan communist, but you know, they didn't, didn't succeed. And so, uh, so essentially, for for years and years and years, Soviet foreign policy was focused on how do we get these other capitalist countries. That's how they thought of it. Like the um, how do we get these capitalist countries to fight amongst each other? And so, um, you know, there's guys like Harry Dexter White. There were Soviet spies in the U.S. and um, they they helped turn Japan against the U.S. and vice versa. Not saying that anybody here was like a good guy, okay? As someone who is constantly learning new information and skills, I've found some tricks to most effectively and efficiently retain and remember that information. And one of the keys to this process is actively engaging with the content. You have to use it. And when it comes to learning a new language, the most efficient app out there is Babbel. With Babbel's revolutionary conversation-based approach, learning a new language is both efficient and effective. With quick 10-minute lessons rooted in real-life situations, you can start actually speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Take it from somebody who has struggled mightily to learn Greek to impress my beloved wife and my in-laws. I really wish Babbel had existed back then. It would have helped so much. So I highly encourage you guys to check out Babbel today and take advantage of the special deal for Impact Theory listeners. 
right now. Get 55% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash impact theory. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash impact theory. And that's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Again, slash impact theory. Rules and restrictions may apply. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation, and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. It's Tom Bilyeu here, and if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. This goes to an idea of there are second, third, fourth, fifth order consequences to things. And when you have a lot of things happening at once, especially on a geopolitical stage, this all plays into why in this unique moment we are standing so close to the precipice and why people aren't hearing you that we're standing this close. So I want to I want to re-anchor everybody around. This interview is born out of, you spent a million dollars to get people to understand why we're printing so much money. That's so crazy. Like- there's no way that people understand that you're the only person I can conceive of that would ever do this. I mean, it just, it struck me as so bizarre when you first um, brought everybody's attention to this, that you were going to pay the million dollars to, to get attention. I'm obsessed with getting people to say like what their thing is in a single sentence. Here's, here's, here's in a single sentence. Yeah. Uh, the, if in 2008, it was a banking crisis in um and, and a mortgage crisis in 2023 it's a central banking crisis and a currency crisis now um, the question becomes why why do these one why is it a central banking crisis and why then does it potentially mushroom into something bigger we are now in an inflationary environment uh that had been denied that inflation was going to happen for a decade due to what inflation uh, because people had, quote, printed money from 2008 to 2020, and the only effect seemed to be on asset prices and home prices and all the things in financial markets. But in the physical world, you had deflation, partly due to tech 
bringing down prices, you know, um, like electronics became cheaper and so on. Um, and, uh, so <clears throat> people thought if you go back to early 2021, that inflation's a quote, right-wing conspiracy theory, or it's not going to happen, hasn't happened for 12 years. You're so stupid for bringing it up. And there's all these articles about that. And so over the course of 2021, they're first saying inflation isn't going to happen. So more stimulus is good. We've proved inflation can't happen. Then they're saying, oh, maybe it's transitory inflation. But they're still selling hundreds of billions of dollars in bonds during this period. And uh, then suddenly in, you know, as late as November 2021, they're still saying transitory inflation. Then December 2021, after Powell is renominated in November 22nd, 2021, they hike, start hiking interest rates very rapidly. And everybody was who that bonds, deceit. I think it was deceit. I've got actually an article on this called "Too Fake to Tell." Okay, um, which basically makes a case that Powell was aware, uh, at least at one point, that. Um, so, so let me give an analogy here because it's a very technical sounding space. And uh, when you explain all of this, you know that meme where the guy is like pointing at the the cork board, and you know. There's like all the lines connected to everything else, and you look like the the crazy guy. Yeah, exactly. See, the thing is, the financial system is set up to be intentionally opaque. If you are the Fed, and you're saying, hey, guys, buy long-duration bonds, which will lock you into an interest rate, um, rates are going to be low forever, so just take what you can get now, take it out, 10 years, whatever, um, all's going to be well, we don't have any intention of raising the interest rates, but you actually do plan to raise interest rates. So then the problem is people put all their money into an asset that you are about to tank by raising the interest rates. So they effectively get you to buy. Now, I don't know. I don't understand this well enough to say whether they did it on purpose or if this is just one of those things that's too hard to predict. I don't know. But that was the effect. Hey guys, buy these bonds, buy them long, not gonna increase the the interest rates anytime soon. And then people go buy them billions of dollars worth of them. And then they raise the interest rates. And so now the value of those bonds tank. Now your money is locked because when you bought them, just so people understand how this works, when they bought the bonds, they thought they'd be able to sell them. So they didn't think, oh, I'm going to be stuck with this for 10 years. It that's That's the time to maturity. But they thought that they would be able to sell them, that the market would still be good because interest rates were going to stay low. So it all hinges on this question. Did he know did the Fed know they were going to raise rates? Because if they knew they were going to raise rates and they got the banks to buy in, now you've got a problem. And I've heard you say the phrase, uh, the Fed lied and banks died. Now, that that's sinister. If they knew they were going to raise the rates, that's really gnarly. Can you see the screen there? On page 193 of these minutes, okay, um, the, uh, the Federal Reserve minutes here. <clears throat> Second, I think we're at a point of encouraging risk-taking. Um, Meanwhile, we look like we are blowing a fixed income duration bubble right across the credit spectrum that will result in big losses when rates come up down the road. You can almost say that is our strategy. Okay. So Oof. at least 10 years ago, he was aware that, how could you not be aware in his position, but that if you sold a ton of bonds and then hiked rates very, very, very rapidly that you would devalue everything you just sold. Like the bond market is complicated. So I came up with an analogy to kind of explain this, right? Um, imagine Apple told Best Buy and Target and Walmart that it was only going to be selling iPhone 10s for the foreseeable future, okay? And so 
it sold them billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of iPhone 10s. And, um, you know, it said, we're not going to be selling better iPhones for a long time. Buy these, buy them in bulk, and so on and so forth, okay? Then after Apple sells all those billions of dollars in inventory, suddenly it turns around and launches the iPhone 11, a better phone, and thereby devalues everything it just sold by at least 10 or 20%. And even though it's maybe a small depreciation, it's across such a huge amount of inventory that Best Buy, Target, Walmart take massive losses. And some of these are low margin businesses. So it's like a huge, huge hit to them. And the thing is that, you know, whether Apple knew that it was going to launch the iPhone 11, which it probably did, or even if it didn't know, either way, at the time it sold those old iPhones, it was telling the buyers it's not going to launch a better model for a long time. Makes sense, right? So had Apple done that, had it committed to not launching a new phone and dumped a bunch of older phone inventory on um, buyers and then suddenly devalued all of that, you'd, you know, the buyers would have a case. They'd call that fraud, right? Apple would have sold those assets on false representations, regardless of whether they knew at the time that they were going to launch the iPhone 11. And frankly, how could they have not? Okay. But you know, if they just changed their minds, the commitment they gave to the guys who bought it at the time that they were selling it was, we're not going to launch a new phone for a long time. So feel free to buy tons of these. They're our best model. Okay. Does that make sense? You know? Oh, Yes. As a bond buyer, you have the same thing. You think, okay, do I want to buy at today's interest rate or do I want to wait and maybe the interest rate will be higher and I buy tomorrow? Especially because if I buy a bond today, it gets depreciated if the interest rate is high tomorrow. The Treasury and the Fed are different entities. Treasury is selling the bonds and then Fed is uh, effectively setting the price of the bonds by setting interest rate. If you think of them as a unitary entity, the U.S. government, because they do act together in most, most cases, then it's like the U.S. government sold all of these banks hundreds of billions of dollars in assets that it then devalued. One of the things that I find interesting is that value investing is really broken down for what, like at least the last five years, which leads to the question, what the hell is going on? And that's what, you know, that's what we're really dancing with here is the complexity of this problem. But there, there are so many signals that something's going on from all the things we listed. And I just want to recap some of the things we listed in, in the beginning here. So you've got debt ceiling is way up. Markets estimating a record high probability of U.S. sovereign uh, default. Most U.S. banks are near insolvency or already technically insolvent. Three of the four largest bank failures in U.S. history have happened in the last two months. trillion in losses at banks have yet to be reconciled. Morgan Stanley believes that the commercial real estate um, uh, sector is poised to be a worse disaster than the 2008 financial crisis. 2022 was the worst year for bonds in a long time. De-dollarization, which you went through in detail, is happening. Uh, Sovereign defaults are at an all-time high. We had 14 in the last three years versus 19 in the previous 20 years, that's 4.7 per year now versus less than one per year previously. That's an increase of almost 5X. We have millionaire migration uh, to the US has dropped by 86% in the last three years. And central banks are buying a ton of gold, a ton of gold, the chart is ridiculous, presumably because they see that something is coming. So it's like, okay, the, the, you you are the only you actually one missed I a know. few. You got a lot. Oh, you, dude, you missed a few. I, I, I cut out like <laughs> ten. 
Yeah, so there's an insurance crisis. There's the fiscal crisis. Blue states are bankrupt, like California, Illinois, places like that. They're, they're losing a lot of money. There's the auto loans. There's the student loans. There's credit cards. Each of these are like trillion-dollar problems that could crash the economy, and they're all happening essentially at the same time. It is insane. So I feel like we're standing on this really rickety thing. You said that the, you know, the economy is beginning to creak. Uh, but I've heard you use an example before that I worry is more accurate. Now, remember, all I care about, I want people to look at this. Neither of us have a crystal ball. The one thing we are guaranteed to get wrong is timing. I just want everyone to be very clear. Now, the wins and losses all come around timing. So, of course, like if I had a crystal ball, <laughs> I'd just shut the show down and just go make a lot of money. So uh, I have no idea when this is going to happen. So to, to be very clear, but you've used an example before that I think is absolutely brilliant. And that is, this is a wily e. Coyote moment. W yes. What do you mean by That's right. that? So, you know, Wiley e. Coyote, if people haven't seen it, you can probably put up an image of it. This character from Looney Tunes, and they walk off a cliff and they're just, you know, merrily going in midair. Then one day they look down, and they're like, oh my goodness. And the markdown is digital in a sense, right? They just fall all the way straight down, right? And if you look at the graphs of some of these bank stocks, they're kind of like that where they're analog and they're just kind of floating through the air. And then suddenly somebody actually looks at the financials, they look down and they're just digital, they die overnight. The, that okay. analogy is so apt because, and this is why I, I never know how to handle these moments because by talking about it, you are getting people to look down. And so in some ways you run the risk of speeding it up. So you talked earlier about Janet Yellen. She knew there was a problem, but she didn't speak up. Now you've, for people just listening, he just made a face. So we're going to get to the face in a second, but like you've got Janet Yellen who uh, knows there's a problem, but doesn't broadcast the problem. But I don't know if I'm mad at her for not broadcasting the problem, but at the same time, I can't help myself out of a moral sense of obligation from telling people, hey, you might want to look down. Why do you make the face? Well, the reason is, that line of argument that talking about it is causing it is actually uh, people throw that around. I think it's false, but it's false in a in an important and interesting way, which is when you know when one of the things I've found that's I think a, a stupid kind of meme is you talk about this type of stuff, people will be like, "Oh, you're such a doomer, you're such a downer. Just look on the bright side, man. You know, blah blah blah, that kind of thing, right?" And, you know, the goal is to be neither a, a pessimist nor an optimist, but to be just a realist. And if you're a realist, then um, you're not a Pollyanna, right? Like, it's not a doomer to say, oh, there's a wall in front of you. You might, as, you might want to turn the car. <laughs> you know, that's like, that's just, that's just being smart, right? Um, it's being realistic. And the thing is that what happens when you talk about this stuff in the absence of another human being there the negative emotions that people have out of visualizing what a deleveraging actually is are projected on you. Oh, you're causing it. Oh my God, you're causing a bank run, et cetera. You know who caused it is Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve and Janet Yellen and the US financial system, but especially Powell because he's the chair of the Federal Reserve. Why does Powell hate America so much? <laughs> you know, like that's actually the question. Why did he, you know, um, devalue the treasuries that uh, the government had sold in, in 2021? Why did he tell people that interest rates were going to be kept at zero before totally, you know, uh, jacking them to the moon? Why did he say that inflation was transitory when it, when it wasn't, right? I have a slightly different hypothesis, which is all the things you just said 
are true, that the the mistake, the the actions that are being taken are being taken by those people and those actions are creating the problem. But my whole thing about it's it's the debt that causes this collapse. I don't think any human, any uh, any group of people is a better way to think about it. I don't think any group of people can stay emotionally sober for long once they've lost sight of the people who built the thing. So once you've had enough people that have inherited the country working well, you you now just, it it is guaranteed to devolve into these choices that happen around debt. Because again, we talked about this earlier. This is a, this is a it's coming from a beautiful place. They want, to, they want more people in housing. They want to make things better for people. They want to elevate people, lift people out of poverty, make sure that, you know, nobody goes without. Like it really does. Like I understand the, um, what you call the, the wokening, I think the wokening of America. Like the great I, awakening. I get it's not my coinage, the great awakening. Yeah. Whoever came up with it, I like get it. I get the impulse to it, but the problem is that you end up, you get in this debt cycle of, oh, let's just, let's, let's inflate the currency. Let's print money. So we're printing money. We're inflating the currency and look, yeah, kind of cheeky. It does devalue everybody's money, but nobody feels it too badly. Like, honestly, that in 2008, I was like, word, like print money, man. If that's going to help people, that's amazing. I got devalued, obviously. And then again, SVB, I didn't have any money in SVB, but I was still like, word, yeah, print. So I'm just like, wait, is this much ado about nothing? Or is this the cycle that humans cannot get themselves out of? And I'm as much of the problem as anybody else. Cause I'm like, yeah, I don't want to see people suffer, man. If you can print like print, I guess we all like take a hit, but it's like, when does it become a problem? Okay. Well, so first is, um, there's something called the Cantillon effect. Okay. Which is to say, and, and, and you know, I think some people have an intuitive grasp of this, but, but I'll, I'll explain it anyway. Um, printing money is in a sense like official counterfeiting and the guy who is got the counterfeited dollar first can spend that and get more of the purchasing power. And then eventually it makes its way through the system and the entire money supply gets marked down and it's got less of its purchasing power with the 15th guy who's, who's, um, got it. Okay. And so printing is not costless. What printing just does is it's like, basically inflation is taxation. It's like, um, let's say you had, I don't know, a hundred billion dollars. Okay. In the economy as a whole. And then the government prints another hundred billion dollars. That's as if the government seized 50% of the wealth in the country. Oh. Does that make sense? Or at least 50% of the yes. savings. Yes. And I, I don't know how intuitively this comes to people, but yes, once you get it, once the penny drops, it's brutal. Yeah. So in, so inflation is taxation. That is to say, and printing, when you, especially when you're printing a large percentage of money supply, it is essentially centralized seizure of wealth. The difference is, it is um, if you think about the difference between like a like a in-your-face predator, that's like communism, you know, or like a like a lion, you can see it coming, versus a stealth predator that's camouflaged, like a snake, that's like Keynesianism. Um, communism, they would just go to your house with a gun and they would just shoot you and take your farm and you know throw you know your 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 children in a gulag or whatever, right? Um, Very direct. I mean, that was a lived experience. That was a lived experience of many people in Russia, China, Vietnam, like all kinds of people. That's what yep. collectivization was, okay? But Keynesianism is, it steals the money in a much more subtle way where a button is hit 
And it's like a mosquito. You don't even feel it, right? The blood is sucked. Or it's like a camouflage snake or something like that. You're, you're dead or bankrupt or devalued at the end of the day. But it's, you might even feel it's helping you. So, for example, let me show you uh, in particular a very important graph. Did Republicans pay for 2008? So let's revisit. First, take a look at this graph, okay? Have you seen this graph before? Oh, yes, my friend. I told you. Every graph you've ever put out, I think I've seen. It's probably not literally true, but it's very close. Okay. All right. Well, that's cool. So there is a Wall Street Journal article that this comes from. Okay. And um, there's, it's actually like an animated version. So you can play the animated version that goes back and forth. So you should do that. Point is, what is this graph showing? Um, basically, it is showing congressional districts in the US by their uh, real GDP, okay, inflation adjusted GDP. And um, what you can see is the, the kind of solid line, blue line, and red line. In 2008, uh, Democrat and Republican congressional districts were were mostly evenly matched. That is to say, both them had rich districts, both them had poor districts, and the median wealth, median real GDP in both those districts was comparable. Okay, ten years later, by 2018, the the distribution of uh, Democrat you know districts had pulled away from the Republicans. Like the median GDP of Republicans was like. $30 billion in their congressional districts for Democrats was like 50 billion or thereabouts. And moreover, all of the wealthiest congressional districts were suddenly Democrat. So essentially in 10 years, this massive gap was opened up between the two parties. And this is how you went from the uh, like um, suit and tie wearing Republicans of the early 2000s to the trucker hat proles of the late 2010s. And that transformation happened over the life of most of the people who are watching this. But I believe it happened in part because the printing went disproportionately to the coasts. Mm. That is to say, if you track the Cantillon effect, if you track the flow of printed money, well, it's a Fed. It buys these overpriced mortgages from banks. The banks now have extra assets on their books, and they can spend it on financial assets and uh, then those people have money in their bank accounts, and then they can go and spend it on houses or goods or whatever. But that's disproportionately in um, in the coast. The money went to Washington, D.C. It went to New York. And then some of it made its way to Silicon Valley. Venture capital is actually a tiny fraction of the overall investment landscape. It's like a few billion versus hundreds of billions of dollars. But like a small rivulet of that printed money made its way out to Silicon Valley venture capital. And that was probably like the most productive use of the money because you're talking about investing in businesses that are being built from scratch. And, um, and that's a whole separate story as to, to what happened there. But essentially, the money made its way to the coast. Uh, and, uh, and the guy in Oklahoma, who's some cashier in Oklahoma, got the printed dollar last and didn't even realize that they had been devalued and um, that they had been essentially had a good chunk of their assets seized and their whole town had, had their assets seized. Um, and the thing about this is, the whole time, as you just said, people are like, well, we're helping people. The Fed saved the world, right? Well, what it actually was, I mean, you know, 2009, 2016, it's a Democrat administration. Perhaps it was just a coincidence that the Democrats became far richer than the Republicans in 10 years, okay? But it does seem like the cost of the print was imposed on the political opposition in a deniable and invisible way, unconscious even to those doing the imposing who'd actually say, we, we saved the world, we help people, stimulus, blah, 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 right? 
And that's like a camouflage predator where it's like anesthetizing its target that doesn't even know the blood is being drained. Mm. Okay. That's being attacked. It's like, it's, you know, you know, strikes like this. Right. And that's actually better because, you know, a lion gets your fight and flight response up. You know, it's a predator mosquito doesn't it's done and you don't even maybe detect that it's happened. Right. Uh, and so it's like, we see that evolution has selected for the camouflage predator. And that's a lot of what the financial system is. Um, and, and if you think about this, by the way, and you start relating, I mean, think about how many times banks try to get one over on you with fine print, right? Fine print is not a tactic. It's a strategy. The whole point is to get somebody to sign a contract that they didn't fully read or they didn't, they didn't understand and parse the legalese and lock them into some adjustable rate mortgage um, or some student loan where they're too naive to understand, you know, like how bad it is for the rest of their life and they're 18 and they don't, you know, they're not taught um, interest rates. They're not taught taxes and stuff in high school. They're taught just a bunch of gibberish and then they sign a student loan for the rest of their lives. The system is sort of set up to get people into debt. And to be clear, I'm as capitalist as they come, but I do believe there's asymmetric information, information arbitrage there. And that which you've seen at an individual level that the financial system does is all something it does in my view at a collective level. By the way, there's somebody else who paid for 2008. You know who that was? Hmm, no. Potentially the, uh, the Arab world. And the reason is uh, basically food price spikes helped trigger the Arab Spring, right? The US exported its inflation. Remember the whole Arab Spring in the early 2010s? Right. I do very much. And this this is going back to your earlier thesis uh, for everybody listening along. Uh, as as you, Balaji, as you fractal into these ideas, I want people to understand that there is an anchor. Yeah, I'll come There's back something the that chat. triggers yes. this for you. But like the the second, third, fourth, fifth order consequences in hindsight can be seen. And so a big part of why I find your thinking so interesting is you're like, hey, look backwards, understand what you're going to see going forwards. Basically, once you understand that inflation is taxation and that Republicans paid for 2008 and uh, with their money, and unfortunately, a number of people in the Middle East paid for 2008 in part with their lives, because you know people are like, oh, 2008 financial crisis, it wasn't the end of the world. Well, you know what? For the Arab Spring, it was the end of a lot of people's world, right? Libya was plunged into chaos. That inflation did destabilize countries. And even if you say it's only 20% of the, the cause, because it's multiple causes, and I would agree with that, well, that's you, 20% you walk of a lot through, of chaos. How, how did that happen? I, I actually don't understand how the inflation, we didn't really feel it, not in like a way that broke us, but it caused actual instability in other countries. What happened? What's the mechanism? So food prices are the often discussed mechanism that there was like a, a fruit vendor who uh, set themselves on fire um, that helped, uh, you know, Mohammed Bouazizi, right? Uh, fruit vendor set themselves on fire. And that is thought of as what triggered the Arab Spring, right? Like essentially, you know, um, his his prices, December, 17 December 2010 would have been a normal day if the local, um, you know, prices, uh, if the prices hadn't changed. Right. And, um, so it, it, the thing about this is, uh, like it's multifactorial. There's a reason that the government, you know, and, and media covered it at that time and whatnot. It was useful in the sense of, um, have you seen that clip from Wesley Clark where he talks about how even in the early two thousands, uh, like there's folks in the military industrial complex that had decided to invade like seven Arab countries. Have you seen that one? No. Um, 
Wesley Clark's former four-star general, right? And, uh, you know, pretty, pretty senior guy before the Iraq invasion that, um, that the U S planned to attack seven countries in, in a few years. And actually a lot of that came true. Oh my God. I did hear this. And they asked him why. And he said, I have no idea. There, there were a bunch of these folks in like the project for a new American century, um, who, uh, essentially thought that, Islamic fundamentalism was a huge problem and they need to democratize the entire Arab world with like what they did to Germany and Japan. Right. Um, that's like the, the good motives version of it. But of course, uh, I mean, good motives, you, you know what I'm saying? It's like, let's, let's call it, th- that is probably what their internal mental model was like, right. yes, it's terrible that war exists, but you know, it was terrible that world war two happened and Japan and Germany are better off for it. So we need to conquer the entire middle East and democratize them so that their women are free and, and whatnot. That was the narrative of the early two thousands. Okay. Mm-hmm. What happened of course was just absolute mayhem and chaos with ISIS and many of these countries destabilized and Libya in civil war. But is that what destabilized people? That 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 feels more direct. I'm tr- still trying to understand how 2008, we inflate the currency. Why does that so, impact so, right, their so, food prices? We don't have a blockchain where I can show A, purchase B from C and so on. I mean, markets are, you know, are complicated. But um, the U.S. exports its inflation um, in part because uh, it is the consumer of all these products around the world, and um, you know the dollar is its major export. And what is a small or tolerable rise in prices in the U.S. is intolerable abroad if somebody's like kind of living hand to mouth. To give the you know what I could diagram out for you, by the way, is like the exact sequence where it goes from the Fed buying an asset from a bank, which then has a cash and can buy a stock, which then puts money in the hands of an investor who can buy a house. That's actually something where you can probably track it through the financial system to track exactly how uh, the printed money is bidding up. You know, the, you ever heard the saying the price of tea in China, right? Mm-hmm. Like to, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? What does yep. that have to do with the price of grain in Libya? Okay. To track it exactly, you would need access to several different databases that are not public, you know? So, you have to kind of look at the aggregate stats and say, okay, here's how the U.S. exports inflation. Um, and then people will argue about that. Part of the point is that it's meant to be deniable, right? But um, the concept of the U.S. exporting inflation is certainly not my like innovation or anything like that. That's something a lot of folks have talked about. So if you want to get mechanistic about it, you probably have to go and pull data sets from I don't know, several different grain vendors and so on. You see, okay, this guy suddenly got a print of money. And so he bid up X, which bid up Y, which bid up Z, which bid up the prices of this guy in the Middle East, right? But that X, Y, Z, A, and B are hidden because they're not on chain. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. Right. And and that's actually that's actually part of the point. The part of the point is the again, the mosquito, right? The camouflage predator. The point is that you can't see it, right? The point is that that's not public. I mean, think about how much more coverage we um, we got of Kim Kardashian or whatever in the 2010s, then where did all that printed money go? Hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars. Where did all that go? How many, how many articles have you seen? Is it, is it a daily thing on that, a breakdown of where the printed money went? If you know that inflation is taxation, then, um, you know, one option is you can just stay in the system like those Republicans, like those people in the Middle East and those, folks who are near the money spigot 
who can benefit from the Cantillon effect, do another print, and they benefit again first, right? But if you see it coming and you get out first, now you're not part of the base that is diluted. If you get out to outside money, you get out to gold, you get out to Bitcoin, you get out to maybe a foreign fiat, um, now you have an asset where, so go back to that example. Let's say there's $100 billion and the U.S. government prints another $100 billion. It seized 50% of, of dollars, essentially, right? But if there's 21 million Bitcoin, the U.S. government cannot print even one Bitcoin, so it can't seize the Bitcoin. Does that make sense? By right? stealth means, yeah. I'm, I'm not in the camp that Bitcoin is unseizable. I think that you you lock somebody up, they're going to real quick be like, "All right, here it is." Yes, but but basically, it's not it's not easily centrally seizable. You have to go True. back to communism. House, and this is actually very important. Um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, more generally, increase the cost of seizure. Okay, because like a SWAT team costs money. You know, it's sure. like what are forty, fifty thousand dollars or whatever, right? So now you have to actually look at the PNL of going and kicking in somebody's door and beating them up and taking their private keys, right? Mm. And you have to have you know, first you have to find them, you have to find uh, you have to have, you know, like some legal authority to go in and beat them up, take the and then you have to replicate that. And that'll arouse resistance because now it's no longer the camouflage predator, it's it's the lion, right? It's mm. something that you can actually see.